All that being said, let's make our way to Matthew chapter 5. So we will be in the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. And let me just give you a brief uh, introduction, a reminder of where we've been. Is uh, In chapter 1, we looked at the family tree, the family line of uh, the Messiah. In chapter 2, we looked at the birth and this miraculous birth of Jesus, the Messiah. In chapter 3, Matthew covers the baptism of the Messiah, and this is where we see his earthly ministry really begin to take place. Jesus didn't do anything until the Holy Spirit actually came upon him in terms of ministry. And then in chapter 4, we see the temptation of Jesus, where he's taken out into the wilderness and he was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. And all this leading up to uh, chapters 5 through 7, which is the first of five discourses that we find in the Gospel of Matthew. This one is called the Sermon on the Mount. This we'll we'll actually look at for the next several weeks. It goes from Matthew chapter 5 all the way to chapter 7. But all this, Matthew is intentionally writing with the idea that he's trying to lay out Jesus is the Messiah. And as he is the Messiah, his uh, first point of his ministry, what we saw in chapter 4, is he began with teaching. Right, Jesus came, yes, to save. He was the perfect uh, lamb that was sacrificed for each one of us. But what he also did is he, he taught. He first taught, and then he healed. So as we begin, let's look at these first couple verses in Matthew chapter 5 uh, as we get started. Verses 1 and 2. We see, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying. And so what we see is he begins by uh, teaching. And we actually look back in chapter 4, verse 17. This was the message that he taught uh, in verse 17 of chapter 4. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so his teaching begins with a message on repentance, right? We covered what this word means. It's a, a change in mind that leads to a change in action. And so his message begins with repentance, and then he begins to heal. What we find is he's actually giving us a sneak peek, a preview of what heaven is going to look like. That in heaven, all will be healed. All sickness, all death. This SIN problem that each one of us is infected with, right? The wages of sin is death. This is all going to be wiped out in heaven. And so what we see is Jesus Begins his earthly ministry, he's going, hey guys, you want to know what heaven's going to look like? Take a look. All that come to me are going to be healed. Now, uh, unfortunately, not all received it well. You would think that everyone would be excited about this message, especially since the people had waited for thousands of years for the Messiah. Since Moses told them way back in Exodus, or in, in Deuteronomy, excuse me, that there's going to be a prophet that's going to come with a capital P that's going to be greater than me, they were all on the lookout for the prophet, this seed that was promised to Abraham. And so you would think they would generate hope, but instead what John writes in John 1.11 is that he came to his own and his own didn't receive him. They did not receive the message. And really, ultimately, what's the message? As you look at Jesus healing people, it's a message of hope. A message that we could use a little bit of right now in this day. And so as Jesus teaches this message of hope and gives a preview of heaven and people look longingly for Him to set up His kingdom, what does it take to actually get access to this heaven that He shares about? 
Well, he tells us in verse 20 what it takes to get to heaven. So if you're interested in getting to heaven, here's all you need to do. In verse 20 of chapter 5, we'll skip ahead just a little bit. He says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So there you go. Point number one, your righteousness only needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. That sounds easy enough, right? I mean, we've talked about the Pharisees in church. We, we kind of badmouth them. But do you understand, these guys were the religious elite. They had it going on in the nation of Israel. Nobody had more righteousness than these guys. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us that he was a Pharisee. And what he says about himself is that according to the law, he was blameless. He had the law down perfect. And Jesus says, look, if you want to get to heaven on your own, good news, all you got to do is do better than that guy who's perfect. Now, to, to fast forward just a little bit further in chapter 5, verse 48, this is another thing that Jesus has to say about getting to heaven. If you desire to get there, He says, therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. So here you go. If you want to get there on your own, you've got to have righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, and you've got to be perfect. Now, I don't know about you, but my uh, great grand or my grandmother uh, Conley would say whenever something like this would come about in her life, well, fiddlesticks. That's how I think about my life right now. Well, fiddlesticks. Right? I, I am by no means perfect, not even close. And yet I started by telling you this is a message of hope. Well, who feels hopeless right about now? Remember, as Jesus is teaching, He's teaching first to His disciples, right? He's teaching first to those closest to Him in his, their inner circle. And what He's trying to do, He's trying to convey a message to two different groups of people. First, to unbelievers, He's trying to drive them towards Himself. To unbelievers, His goal is to drive them towards their need for a Savior. The idea in this is you cannot do it on your own. Every one of us needs help to get there. This is why when Paul writes in Galatians to this church in the area of Galatia, in Galatians 3.24, he says the law is a schoolmaster. It's a school tutor, and the law's purpose is to point to the fact that we cannot do it on our own. It's not only that we can't do it a little bit on our own, that in fact the law doesn't have just ten commandments, which we like to pretend to try to keep, but the law has 613 commandments. And if you break one of them, you're a lawbreaker. And the penalty of that is death. So the idea of the law is to prove that we need a Savior. And then to the believers, Jesus is saying, look here, I'm the Savior. All that come to the Father come through me. And so He wants to direct us in how we are to live in this Christian life. So this is the message that Jesus is going to go around and share to different communities. What we find is through Scripture that this is probably a standard message that Jesus gives from town to town to town that He goes through as He teaches repentance. But He's trying to direct us how to live in Christ. So how then is He going to direct the Christian? He's going to direct us in blessings. In other words, if you do these things, you will be blessed. I don't know about any of you, but uh, I'm not going to turn down a blessing from Jesus. Right? Uh, so, so we want to say, look, I would, I would do whatever Jesus tells me, even if there was no blessing. That is true for many of us, but if He's going to give me a blessing, I'm going to take it. 
Right? If you don't want your blessing, feel free to forfeit it to me because I'll take all the blessings that Jesus wants to lump upon me. So this is how, what he's going to say. This is how you can be blessed. How you can live the Christian life and be blessed. And the word blessed, we're going to see it appear over and over again. It means, oh, how happy. Right? Oh, how happy is what the translation actually says. And this isn't happiness like that emotion that goes up and down for me based on how the Colts are going to do today. But this is a blessed assurance. This is a joy that, that actually is deep inside. I know that in my foundation, He's going to be true. How do I know He's going to be true? What's the key word in the book of Matthew? We said it week in and week out. It's fulfilled. He has fulfilled His promises over and over again. He's fulfilled the, the preachings, the teachings, the prophecies that spoke of Him. So if He's going to do that then, He's certainly going to do what He's promised to me now. So I can be assured. Right? This is a blessed assurance. Now, what we also find is as we go through the text today, this is like dominoes they are going to fall to in the Christian life. These are a chain reaction of blessings. So in other words, it, it's a progressing, a maturing that happens in the Christian life as they make their way, as we make our way through the Beatitudes. So as one domino falls, the next domino falls. And, and, and also, I want to remind you that these are not what you do, but these blessings are who you are as a believer. So let's begin in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now notice with me as we read that, blessed are the poor in spirit. This is not necessarily poor in wallet. right? This is also not necessarily poor in self-esteem. We oftentimes think that if we have low self-esteem, uh, good news is I'm doing exactly what Jesus says. I'm going to get the kingdom of heaven because I have low self-esteem. That's not at all what He's trying to communicate. What he's saying is, blessed are you who have a correct view of yourself, who see yourself in your position correctly. Now, we're living in the day and age where oftentimes for our kids, we want to build them up, build them up, right? We don't want anybody to have low self-esteem, Junior. We can't have anybody thinking anything bad about themselves. And so we've, we've built this in our kids where everybody's a winner, everybody's good all the time. That didn't happen for me growing up. I don't know about you. But I played on a third and fourth grade basketball team where my dad was the coach. All right? And he, he not only was my coach, but he never played me. I sat on the end of the bench. Most other kids' dads were the coach because they wanted to play their kid. I never got in. And finally, in the fourth grade, I said, hey, hey Dad, why is it you play everybody else and you don't play me? And he looked at me very seriously and he said, well, it's because you're not very good. Well, all right. That's a boost to the old self-esteem. But he said, you know what? I look outside, and there's a hoop, and there's a ball in the garage, and if you want to play, I'd suggest you go out there and practice just a little bit. And so the next year, I signed up for basketball camps, and I worked really, really hard. And before long, I'm actually on the all-star team. Why? Because I didn't want to continue to be not very good. My father gave me an accurate assessment of who I was and where I was. He uh, bestowed upon me the ability to be poor in spirit. And in the business world, what we find is there's a lot of talk about EQ. This is your emotional intelligence. It's a, 
it's a very popular study right now for people in business. And what one of the major characteristics of this, it's how self-aware am I? Do I have self-awareness? Do I notice my position? And when it comes to salvation and your place in Christ, what, what we find is ultimately without Him, without help, we are doomed. That's how we are to view ourselves. We are poor in spirit. If I don't have help with this thing, it's going to go very badly. So you want to ask, where's the blessing in this? Here's the blessing. He picked you. He picked you. Out of everybody he could have chose, he chose you. And he chose me. Now there's a real blessing in that. Now let's look at verse 4 as we continue on. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. <clears throat> and so what we see is blessed are those who mourn. What am I mourning now? I'm mourning my own spiritual condition. Blessed are those who mourn their spiritual poverty. What we just looked at in verse 3. Their state, right? Their, their poverty in spirit. Now there are three different kinds of mourning that we see throughout the Bible. Uh, the first is natural mourning. This is one that we probably all understand. If you've lost a loved one or someone close to you, we understand that this causes a natural mourning, the death of loved ones. And, and this is not uh, anti-biblical. This is actually what, what the Bible says is mourn with those who mourn. How we are to interact with people who are in a spot of mourning is we are to mourn alongside them. There's actually a comfort that comes along from that natural mourning as we relate and we connect to one another. Now the second kind of mourning that is in Scripture is a sinful mourning. This type of mourning leads to remorse, but it does not lead to repentance. And a biblical example would be way back in uh, the early portions of Genesis, we see the story of Cain and Abel, right? These two brothers, sons of Adam and Eve. And they both bring a sacrifice to God only Abel brings the sacrifice God asked for. His law said you should do this. And Cain brought the one that he thought was a good idea. And so what happens is God accepts Abel's act, sacrifice, does not accept Cain's, and Cain's reaction to that is he was angry. Very angry. He mourned over this uh, condition that he was in, and yet it did not lead him to repentance. He was remorseful. He felt bad. He was angry and upset, but he was angry with God. God, why didn't you accept this? He leads God to tell him, look, Cain, if you do rightly, won't it go right by you? If you just do right, if you just do what you're commanded to, it'll go so much better for you. And so we see this sinful remorse. This sinful mourning leads to remorse, but never to repentance. The third type is a spiritual mourning, and for that I'll let the Apostle Paul expound upon that in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. This is what Paul has to say in verse uh, 9. He says, Now I rejoice, not that you were to be made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So a godly sorrow, a sorrow that leads to repentance, looks upon our life, our state, where we're at, and, and that actually leads us to life. 
right? Because we were able to reflect upon this. Now, you might wonder, how is this a blessing? Here's the good news. What he does is he actually gives us a comforter. That in spite of our condition and our state, he gives us a comforter who is called the Holy Spirit. Our parakletos is what he's called in the Greek. He comes alongside us. He is our helper, our comforter. Now then, as the dominoes have fallen from poor in spirit to them, uh, blessed are those who mourn. In verse 5 we see, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So meekness is the next uh, uh, step in the Christian life. Let me tell you, meekness is not weakness, but meekness is power under control. This is power that's actually uh, been harnessed, that's, that's been placed in a position of control. And so what I think of when I think of power under control is my grandfather, Mo Ashley. So he was a huge man, six foot five, 300 pounds, just a mountain of a guy. And as a little kid, I remember looking up to him. He had the, beep, the, the big, deep voice that he would use. Whenever you walk into the room, he'd say, hey, like that. And just, boy, it'd startle you. But he was always under control. He always had this powerful way about himself, and yet he, he never seemingly was out of control, except if you messed with his food, don't do that, or sports. Sports was the other Achilles heel that, that things would get a little uh, out of hand. And, and I remember as a kid, uh, we would go to the racetrack. We raced quarter midgets, and in Terre Haute, we would race on Friday nights. And in one particular race, there was a family there from Robinson, and my dad and grandfather felt like they were cheating right that was unacceptable in the sports world you do not cheat you especially do not cheat uh, our family not in any way and so i remember coming off the track and this was the time when i saw power that was under control was no longer in control so the only thing i remember is looking up as a kid and here's the the fam the grandfather of the family that was cheating us i see his feet dangling off the ground as my grandpa had him by his shirt collar and just shaking him I don't remember exactly what he said. It's probably better that I don't remember exactly the words that were exchanged, but it was very clear who was uh, the more powerful one. And then I think about Jesus, right? He was always in control until those that he loved were being mistreated, right? Until it was time to cleanse the temple of those that were taking advantage of his family, his Christian people. And he was not afraid to let the, the power out of the bag, if you want to call it that. But this is what He's given us. He's given us this unbelievable power residing in each one of us, and yet the sign of a maturing Christian is we actually keep it in control. Now, how is this a blessing, you might ask? Well, what we see right here, it's the meek shall inherit the earth. That sounds like a pretty awesome blessing. We get to inherit the earth. What uh, God actually... Uh, says to the uh, the pen of Jude is behold Jesus comes with ten thousands of his saints that for his saints we will actually get to come down with him to rule and reign as he sets up his perfect kingdom for a thousand years we get to rule and reign it's a wonderful thing the other thing that comes with this is rest I don't know about you but that sounds pretty awesome what Jesus actually says in, in Matthew uh, chapter 11 at the end of that chapter, He says that, that this is what I'm going to provide. I'm going to provide rest to any who are weary and heavy laden 
Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He doesn't say there is no yoke and there is no burden, but he says it's easy and it's light. And you can actually be yoked. You can be tied to me. We can be there together. And then we get to defer to his power. Right? No longer do I have to feel like I've got to fight every single battle. I can just go, yeah, I'm yoked to him. That I'm going to defer to the guy that's in charge over here. I'm going to be yoked to that guy. And we find there's rest that actually takes place in this. Next we see in verse 6, Blessed are those, oh how happy are those, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And now we see a transition in the Beatitudes. They're going to go from blessings that are received to active blessings. In other words, some participation may be required. There may be some participation drills here for each of us. And here's the thing. What he says is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Being hungry and being thirsty implies a need. That As we mature, we find out there's a need in this situation. What do we need? I need some righteousness. There's a hungering and a thirsting for this. Now, there are two different kinds of righteousness we see. First, it's positional righteousness. By positional righteousness, I mean that at salvation, I realize I don't have enough righteousness to make this thing on my own. I need some help in this. And so at salvation, what, what Jesus actually does is He trades my lack of righteousness for His perfect righteousness. That's a pretty good trade right there. So if you're thinking about trading up, that's a good one to go with. So He trades this at salvation. And, and at this point, we find that we are now justified. We have justification and what that means is just as if I'd never sinned. I am justified. And all this is made possible. What's the activator? It's faith. It's not works. It's not good looks. It's not our bank account. It is faith, right? This is what was accounted to Abraham as righteousness. It was belief. And so at that point in time, positionally, I am Righteous. I am there with Christ. Secondly, then, we find is practical righteousness. What this means is being right with God positionally allows me to become right with man practically. So as I get my life right with God, I can then become right with man. And so this righteousness then begins to come about and it permeates every part of my life. All of a sudden, relationships start to fall into place. Things that I couldn't make right before now are made right by Him. Now then, if I'm going to be filled, what things can I be filled with? We just looked at righteousness. What other things? Uh, let's look at verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. I can be filled with mercy. Mercy, a definition that I love, is compassion in action. Well, I'll let James talk about that just a little bit. James chapter 2. This is what James has to say about mercy and, and specifically about compassion in action. He says in verse 14, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says that he has faith, but he does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and be filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? 
Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Mercy is compassion in action. I got to tell you, I can brag on my wife because she's not here. She does this to a T. It's unbelievable. I'm blown away by how she can go to Walmart and she can see a need. She can go to school and see a need. She sees need, and then she doesn't just stop there. She, she wants to do something about it. She's looking at how can we bless people? How can we intervene in this situation? What spot can we work in? And, and I'm, I'm blown away because I struggle with this. And this is why I call her affectionately the blonde Holy Spirit. Because she speaks into my life like the blonde Holy Spirit. She's not afraid to say, hey, how about we get involved here? I'm like, I don't know. That looks like a lot of work. Looks like that might be a mess. And yet she encourages me. Sometimes she'll even throw this out here lately. <clears throat> because in the last six weeks, now I'm officially a pastor. She'll say, I don't know, Pastor Brock. Maybe we should get involved here. I'm like, oh, that hurts. That hurts. Now, biblically, an example of this we see is in the life of King David. King David was pursued by Saul for a decade who tried to kill him. Keeping in mind, Saul was his father-in-law. He hunted him down like a dog trying to kill him. Ten years into this, Saul is killed by the Philistines and his entire family with him. Everyone except one person that survived in this massacre of Saul's family, his grandson, Mephibosheth. Now try saying that five times fast. Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, I can't do it. This is the only surviving member of Saul's family. Now as a king comes in and takes over from a, a presiding king, he, uh, it was standard protocol for you to actually kill all of that previous king's family. You would do that because any one of those sons or grandsons would be a threat to your throne. And so do you want to know what David does? Is he goes and intentionally seeks out anyone that is still alive from Saul's family and, and someone steps up and goes, I think his grandson, Mephibosheth, he's living in this place called Lodibar, which I think means a house of the deserted or something like that. It's, a, it's this, this desert, desolate town in the Judean desert. I think there's this grandson that he's got there named Mephibosheth. And so David, instead of having him killed, he instead invites Mephibosheth to eat at his table, not for a meal, but for the rest of his life. For the rest of your life, I want you to stay here with me and I want to take care of you. I want you to be a part of my family. And oh, by the way, I'm going to restore everything that was your grandfather's. I'm going to give it all back to you. All the ground that was yours, all the, the servants that belong to you, I'm going to give it all back. He showed Mephibosheth mercy. Because mercy is not getting what I do deserve. What this young man deserved was to die just like every other son or grandson to a former king would have happened. What you and I deserve is certain death for our sin. And yet God is merciful because He doesn't give us what we do deserve. Now, where's the blessing in being merciful to people? I'll turn with you back to Proverbs chapter 11, verse 17. Here's what Solomon writes about mercy. He says, The merciful man does good for his own soul. This actually does my soul good. But he who is cruel troubles his own flesh. So being merciful is actually good for my very soul. 
And here's what Jesus has to say about it in Luke chapter 6, verse 38. We'll read what he has to say. He knew some stuff. Jesus says, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will it be put into your bosom. For the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. So I don't know about you, but if I'm going to have the same measure that I use be used back on me, I'd rather err on the side of mercy every time. Now, does it mean people will take advantage of you? Yes, it does. Does it mean that all these people will show you the same mercy back? Absolutely not. They probably will not. But if the measure is going to be used back on you, let me encourage you to err on the side of mercy. Continuing on, we see, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so, the, the heart is the seat of emotion, understanding, motive, faith. And the Bible also tells us it is deceitfully wicked. And yet, what we find in Ezekiel 36.26, Ezekiel talks about us getting a heart transplant. Through the pen of Ezekiel, God says, I'm going to take that heart of stone out of your flesh and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh to replace it with. Now, interestingly enough, when we look at this verse, he says, blessed are the pure in heart. The Greek word for pure here is the word katharos, which may sound familiar for any of you in the medical profession because it's the same spot that we get our word for catheterization. I think I butchered that. Heart cath, that sounds a whole lot better. It's where we get our word for heart cath from. What Jesus is saying is, blessed are those who've had a heart cath, who've had that thing cleansed out, who've had the blockage removed so the blood can flow around. And what we find is people with a pure heart, it leads to being sincere, no longer being double-minded. Now, many of you probably have never been double-minded, so this won't make sense to you. But for me, I've been double-minded a lot in my life. I have led a life over here one way, and then I've led a life over here in another way. And the problem is, uh, what happens when those two intersect? Oh boy, that causes a lot of anxiety. That causes all kinds of, uh, of worry and fear because th this life intersects with this life. And what Jesus is saying is, Get yourself a heart cath. You don't have to worry about that anymore. Now you can live a life without being double-minded. There's a huge blessing in that. Blessed is the man who's no longer double-minded. Next, what we find is being obedience, being obedient is actually a sign of love. This is what Jesus says in uh, John 14, verse 21. He's talking about his followers, and he says, this is how you know you're one of my followers. He says in chapter 14, verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. I will be made known. I will give him revelation. I will show myself to the man who follows me and keeps my commandments. And so this is actually a mark of purity. And to take it a step further, what we find is 
Jesus addressing his people, and uh, I didn't put it on the notes for you, but if you go to the right just a little bit in chapter 15, verse 15, Jesus says this, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I call you friends. For all the things that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. I have given you revelation. So where I'm going with this is what starts with obedience grows into love, and then I don't do His commands because I have to any longer. I do them because I get to. It becomes natural. Like with my kids as an example, I have to tell them, take out the trash. Take out the trash. Take out the trash. Take out the trash. Hey, did you take out the trash? Over and over again, reminding them to take out the trash. My hope is someday, just maybe, I'll come home and they will have taken out the trash. And I won't have to tell them to take out the stinking trash. But then I look at my life and I, and I see how many times Jesus has to tell me, take out the trash. Take out the trash. Hey, trash, over here. Trash. That as I grow in my relationship with Christ, I go, oh, i got to take out the trash. I better get that cleaned up. I'm no longer waiting for Him to tell me to take out the trash. I see it accumulating, and I know to take out the stinking trash. I begin to know the will of the Father as He and I grow in this relationship with one another. And so, so often, we want to know, what is God's will in my life? What does He want from me? What direction would He have me to go? And let me encourage you, take out the trash. Become cleansed. Because what we find in Scripture is in that relationship, we go from being slaves to then being friends. If you want to grow in that relationship with Jesus, it starts with obedience. So if we used to be slaves, that meant that even in our relationship with Jesus, we were slaves. We were slaves to sin, and then we were slaves to the law. Right? My kids feel like servants is a better word. I won't use the word slaves. They're servants. But the hope is that they get to grow in that relationship in love, and they become sons and daughters, doing the will of the Father because I get to do it now. I don't have to. I get to. This is exciting as we grow in purity. Let's look at the next one then. Oh, how happy, blessed are the peacekeepers, for they shall be called sons of God. And so the progression from purity then grows into peacemaking. What we see is peacemaking takes place in our life through a progression as well. First, it starts with salvation. I begin by making peace with God. Right? I've looked at my situation. We talked about this to begin with. I know my depraved state. I'm going to make peace with God in my life. Now it grows out of that to then I desire to see others make peace with God. That's called evangelism. You want to know what our evangelistic ministry looks like at Woodlawn Chapel? It looks like you. I have an entirely different circle of people I get to be in contact with throughout the week in my place of work that I'm hoping to evangelize with with the idea that I want to see them know the same peace that I have. And you have a circle that I could never connect with because they're your circle. If you want to know where you've been called, take a look around. That's where you've been called to. And so evangelism, and then evangelism grows into reconciliation. 
I begin to make peace with people who have hurt me. Now, what does that look like? Uh, Paul addresses this to the Romans in Romans chapter 12, uh, verse 18. He says this, if it, all po- if it is possible, even as much depends on you, live peaceably with all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you. Now, that's key to this because there are times where it will not be possible. People will block you and they will not allow you to make peace with them. And yet, how often have I done as much as depends on me? I want to go just so far and I want to stop right there. When we moved from Mattoon the first time, Charleston area, to Farmington, Missouri, I left with the idea that I was going to set up this business and it was going to be unbelievable. We were going to set the world on fire. I was going to be a bajillionaire. So we left all that we knew and loved and cared about. That's an actual number, by the way, a bajillion. You can look it up, kids. We left all that we knew and all that we loved and the people that loved us, and we moved three and a half hours away for this promise. And what I found is two days in, uh, it was complete vapor. It was up in smoke, as Cheech and Chong might say. Uh, never heard that in a message before, have you? It was a complete lie. One of the business partners that claimed to have money, it turned out he didn't actually have any, which is a problem when you're in a new business setting. And so what I found is I had moved my family away from everything that, that we had known for uh, joblessness. I left my executive job to not actually have a job. Now, all that to say, uh, what God actually did with it is He completely uh, reformed our life. My wife was able to get into a, a homeschool PE group where she talked with other ladies that were there. They talked about church. She came home. She said, can we please go to church? Because I don't know anybody here. To which I said, no. And I said, no. But she, uh, again, she's persistent. And so I said, if you will stop talking about it, I will go with you to church. How's that for a loving husband? If you just shut it, I'll go. So that's how we ended up at Parkland Chapel, and that's how God changed my life. But all this uh, said is that that this man that had so uh, hosed me in business also was my next-door neighbor. That, that makes the story even better. He lived two houses down. So every time I would drive to church, I'd drive past his house, and I'd drive back on the way home from church, and this feeling would just bubble up inside me like anger at him, at what he had done to me, even though Jesus had changed everything. And we'd had a successful business. Things were going just fine. And yet I'd never reconciled that. And so one Sunday on the way back from church, I get this feeling again as I drive past this house. I'm like, oh, I hate that guy. And I'm pulling in, and God says to me, you should make that right. I'm like, what? (laughs) Me? You're not talking to somebody else? You should make that right. And so I did what most Christians, I think, do. Uh, I did nothing. I didn't do squat. I didn't reach out. And I'm laying there, and it's 10 o'clock at night, and I can't sleep because I know Jesus told me to reach out, and I didn't do it. And finally, I'm like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to acquiesce. I'm going to reach out. And so I take my phone. I'm like, you know what? I'll just send him a quick text. I still have his number. I didn't block him or delete it like I thought about. And so I sent him a quick text that, hey, you and I should get together sometime. Set my phone on the nightstand. There you go, Lord. Can I please sleep now? It was one of those. 
thinking he was not going to text me back. And sure enough, <laughs> there goes the phone. He texts me right back. I'm like, oh, shoot. So I look, yeah, you anytime. I'm like, oh, man. I'm thinking, all right, I'll make this hard on him. How about tomorrow? Set the phone off to the nightstand. There, that should deal with that. Yep, sounds good. What time works for you? I'm like, oh, stink. So I'm, I'm thinking, I know what he doesn't like. He doesn't like to get up early. He likes to sleep in. How about 5 a.m.? Here you are, Jesus. What do you think of that? Set my phone down. Sounds good. Just name the place. I'm like, oh, okay. Like, ah, I've got it now. I've got an office at the church because I'm the assistant pastor. I'll have him meet me at church. There's no way he's going to meet me there. How about 5 a.m. at Parkland Chapel? Phone down on the nightstand. That'll do him in. Sounds good. See you then. Like, oh, now I'm stuck meeting with him at 5 o'clock in the morning at Parkland Chapel. What proceeded to happen was uh, we met for an hour. I started by telling him that, hey, I'm really sorry for any way that I hurt you and your family. I just want you to know that. No hard feelings. Well, that was a mouthful to get out. No hard feelings. And he proceeded to apologize to me, and we talked for another hour. Uh, I was able to pray with him, uh, gave him a hug, and... I've not seen him again since. But that Sunday, what happened was his two boys were in Sunday school with their grandma. His grandma went to our church. His mom went to our church, the kid's grandma. And what I was plagued with is this idea that what if something happens to him? Because this man's whole world was caving down. I mean, people found out he was a fraud. He was in the news. There were folks that were, that were viciously after him. And in my heart, I thought, yeah, he's getting what he's had coming to him, right? This, this is all coming around. But that all left that day because I knew I couldn't look at myself in the mirror if something happened to him because that was those boys' dad. That was that woman's son. And I was plagued with that. And so, amazingly, through this uh, reconciliation all that anger and all that frustration left me, and I end up the one that's blessed. Can you imagine that? I got the blessing when I'm trying to bless him with my wonderful forgiveness. Here I am, ready to forgive. Man of God. I end up being the one that's blessed as much as depends on me. The next thing that will happen as you work through this progression is then you will be able to be a mediator. Mediation. Where you can actually step in and see peace happen between others. Now this is where the real blessing comes in. Where there are, are folks in your family or in your inner circle, they're at odds and you get to step in and see peace happen in those situations. And here's what James says in James 3.18. For time's sake, I won't go there, but I'll just tell you what he says. This is highlighter worthy. He said, a, a peacemaker's who sow peace will reap a harvest of righteousness. I don't know about you, but if I'm going to have a harvest, I don't want corn or beans. I want me some righteousness. That's a wonderful promise from God that peacemakers who sow peace get to reap a harvest of righteousness. 
Well, let's continue on with these last few verses before we run completely out of time. We see, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you when they revile and persecute you and say all things of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, oh, how happy is the man who is persecuted. Now, what Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, this is Paul's final letter to Timothy. Actually, Paul's final letter to us uh, in, in entirety because shortly after he writes this, he'll be beheaded by Caesar Nero. So as Paul's sitting in prison, he writes this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. He says, If we endure, we shall also reign with him. And if we deny him, he will deny us. If we endure through this life, here's the promise. We get a reign with him, Timothy. That's what he's saying, facing certain death. This is a beautiful promise. And, and here's the deal. For those that are enduring persecution, here's who's actually paying attention to you. First, heaven is paying attention. That's what Paul's writing to Timothy. Heaven is paying attention if you're being persecuted. And guess what? God notices and he will not forget. He's a meticulous note keeper. And for those that are sons and daughters, he's not remembering any of the bad stuff. He's remembering the good stuff. He's meticulous with his note keeping. The second group that's watching, it, it's earth. And for those that are on earth, the people that are around you, you now become a great witness. As people see how you deal with persecution in your life, they're not dumb to it. They, they can tell when people are coming down upon you, making fun of you, Bible thumper, Jesus lover. They see that. They see how you handle that. And you are a great testimony. You are a tremendous witness to them because they see how you handle with grace and poise. And they know how they'd handle it. They'd probably be like my grandfather at the racetrack. Right? They see you handling it with grace and with poise. The third group that's going to pay attention is the world. Satan will notice. And he will try at all costs to stop you, to continue to throw persecution at you. And what Jesus says is you are blessed. Now notice with me too, he says, blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. That's important to point out. He did not say, Blessed are you who are persecuted for being weird. There's a whole different deal out there. There's some people that are persecuted and they think it's because they're righteous. It's actually just because they're weird. right? Or they're just annoying. Uh, when I was a kid, we would go to the Indianapolis 500. And as we would walk into the race on Sunday morning, we'd walk through there along Georgetown and there would always be those people there uh, proclaiming the name of Christ. They were doing a good thing but they were doing it like this. You're fornicators! Drunks! You're all going to hell! And they were persecuted for being annoying. They were. It wasn't for righteousness' sake. It was true that those people were going to hell, but they handled it in such an annoying way, they got beer bottles thrown at them, and they converted absolutely no one. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake 
of righteousness. What Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 4, and I promise this is the last spot, he says this, 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not think it con- uh, strange concerning the fiery trial which is, uh, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached in the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, He is blasphemed, but on your part, He is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. So that's Peter making it clear. You are going to be blessed as you interact with people's life in the name of Christ. And then the Spirit of glory is going to come and rest upon you. That sounds pretty good to me. But don't do it as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a busybody. Check yourself before you wreck yourself, is what Peter's saying in the Brock Ashley Virgin. So then what's the takeaway with all this? How, how is it that we uh, rejoice in these matters? I mean, we're talking about persecution after all. Well, what we see is, is, is these things are going to be hard as we put them into play. But, but here's the reward. What we see in Revelation chapter 7 is for those who are persecuted, you know what? They get to be in the front row. And when it comes to the heavenly scene, they're the ones that are clothed in white at the front row with Jesus. I'm probably going to be way back there in the back. I'll have to look at it on these big screens. But you all that are persecuted because of Jesus, they're going to be up there at the front row. Great is your reward. And then what Jesus also says here at the end of verse 12 is that great is your reward for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're in really good company. You're in tremendous company. We're talking about Elijah, Elisha, Abel, all the way down through the, the, the disciples, Peter, Paul, John, Ringo, all of them are right there. Not John and Ringo. Well, John, not Ringo. Great is your company. And you are amongst the greatest of company. No one was persecuted more than Jesus. He did absolutely nothing wrong. He was perfect. And so as you're persecuted, you are now in the perfect company of Christ. So here's some things to consider as we have a takeaway from this week and from the Beatitudes. First, where are you looking for your reward? Are you looking to build your kingdom here on this earth? Are you looking to build a heavenly kingdom? And by the way, I'm not talking about your finances. You understand that there were rich people that loved Jesus as much as there were poor people that loved Jesus. By the way, Abraham was perhaps the richest man in the entire world. But even for old Abe, he did not trust in things that were made by hand, but he looked forward to a home that was built by God in heaven. Right? Abe had his eyes set on the kingdom of heaven. So where are you looking to build your reward? Secondly, what will you do about it? Will you be remorseful when you look at your situation? Or will you look at your spot and be repentant? To look to turn from your current ways. A change in mind that leads to a change in direction. And then finally, am I 
I made this personal for a reason. Am I willing to be an authentic follower of Jesus? Because I don't know about you, but I can put my Jesus smile on and I can do a pretty good job of being authentic on Sunday. But am I willing to be authentic throughout the week in every part of my life? And the place that I struggle with the most is with my first ministry, and that'd be the ministry in my own house. If there's a spot where I lack grace and mercy and compassion more than any place else, I do a pretty good job here. Good job, Pastor. You're doing the part. You look the part. You even look like a chubby, less handsome Brad Pitt. Good job. You look the part. But here's the thing. If I don't get it right at home, does it really matter? If I'm not authentic with those that I'm supposed to love the most, did I miss it completely? And so I have to examine my own life. Does it ring true for me with those that are the closest to me? And most days, I fall woefully short of that. But here's the thing about authenticity. It also means I have to be willing to be vulnerable. And in vulnerability, there is tremendous power. Satan has no room to work when we are authentic and vulnerable with one another. We can say, you want to know my flaws? I'm going to lay them out there for you. Satan doesn't have to talk to you about them. I'll just tell you what they are. But they've got no hold on me. Because that guy, he's long gone. Authenticity. This is where it starts. And this is the thing for us to reflect on as we consider communion today. So Heavenly Father, thank You so much for a very real list. A very real list of dominoes. A chain reaction in the Christian life that we get to look upon. Thank You, Father, for the Beatitudes. For blessings that we can have if we just follow after these simple things. And we don't do these things because... Uh, you require we do these things because we get to. Lord, we praise you for that. And so as we begin to reflect upon this time uh, for communion, that we're going to take here in just a few minutes. Father, help us to reflect upon our lives and how we're doing with our ministry, starting with home and then as it permeates from there out. Lord, help us to have pure hearts, pure motives, so that we can be peacemakers, Lord, who sow peace and get a reap a harvest of righteousness. Thank You, Father, for all that You've done for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.